It's a dangerous messaging world out there with social media, 24-hour news cycles. It's arguably more dangerous than ever. And it isn't just corporate giants or celebrities who get snared by bad actions, bad news, or bad press. Any of us in the professional world can fall victim, fairly or unfairly. So we should talk about public relations, not just as a way to protect your rear end, but also a strategic way to grow your reputation and relationships. It's PR expert Nick Calm, founder and president of Reputation Partners on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. Here, each week, we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. First, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday advantage in business. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. One underappreciated tool, at least in your host's experience, is that of public relations. Years ago, for example, I took the role of marketing leader at a small bottled spring water business. We operated in a niche premium domestic brand that unfortunately had not grown even while the rest of the category was growing a lot. We needed to build some awareness, but also to change the conversation. And we certainly didn't have the resources to outshout the major industry players such as Nestle or the Coca-Cola company. I called someone named Nick Calm and his agency, Reputation Partners, based upon a recommendation. Later, I learned that referrals are pretty much where all of Nick's clients come from. Fast forward, less than two years afterward, our little company received the highest honor from the International Bottled Water Association for an integrated marketing and public relations campaign. And that is the hidden value of PR in making it part of a proactive growth plan. Now, of course, most people think about public relations in a rather reactive way. It's the spinning to do when things go wrong. We'll talk about some of that as well, because that is both real and it's kind of fun to talk about, at least if that's happening to somebody else. I invited Nick Calm onto the podcast to talk about PR for several reasons. First, I know how valuable his advice is. Second, he has such a broad experience in the business. He's been a leader inside multinational corporations such as FMC Corporation and American Cyanamid. He's been an executive at major PR agencies such as Edelman, and as the founder of his own agency, has now worked with hundreds of clients to enhance, protect, and restore their reputations. Third, when things get hairy, wouldn't you want an expert with the name of Calm, even if it's spelled with a K? Nick, I noticed in the promotional video for Reputation Partners, you talk about delivering expertise without the nonsense. And I know that to be true. So welcome to a nonsense-free Manage Your Message podcast. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate your introduction as well. Well, terrific. You know, your firm, Nick, you talk about both protecting and building brands. And so we'll follow both of those goals as well. And as I mentioned in the intro, a lot of people think about public relations as how do you address it when things get hairy? What to do when trouble of varying types shows up at your door? 
There are a couple of recent instances that I'd love to get your point of view about. Both of these come from the sports world, but I think they have a lot of relevance to business much more broadly. The first involves Nike. You've heard of them and a rising superstar basketball player named Zion Williamson. Now, not all of you message managers will follow college basketball that closely, but know that Zion Williamson is a freshman at Duke University playing for legendary coach K, and he's probably the most visible player and certainly the most visible program in college basketball. Young Mr. Williamson will likely leave Duke after his freshman season and probably will be the first player chosen in the next NBA draft. So here was the scene really recently. Duke was playing its arch rival, the University of North Carolina. It was a nationally televised game that ESPN had been promoting very heavily. Big stage, big audience. The celebrities were out in force, including President Obama and a lot of current NBA stars. They wanted to see Zion in person in this environment. And less than a minute into the game, Zion Williamson falls to the floor in pain as his Nike shoe literally fell apart. Cameras even caught President Obama there in the stand saying, quote, his shoe broke. Probably not a phrase that we would think would happen very often. So, Nick, here we have this public, prominent product failure. It wasn't the message, but it was the product itself. So, if Nike or any business in that situation ask you, what do we do? Well, what would be your general advice? Well, yeah, no, it's a very visible situation. Any company would hope not to find themselves in it, but they've staked a tremendous amount, obviously, on finding athletes, prominent athletes, up and coming ones, to be really a key part of their overall business strategy. So the thing that I would do if I were advising them would be, do you have any other issues like this that you're aware of that may be unfolded in a less public way? You set it up beautifully, Jim, with how you talked about how it was in prime time and very much promoted by ESPN and followed by a lot of VIPs in the audience. That's about the worst kind of product failure that you can have. But the key for Nike is to know whether or not there are other instances like that that are lurking out there. Because if there are, those are the things that are likely to come to light. They can minimize the exposure if this was a freak accident and somehow one set of sneakers snuck through their process and failed at the worst possible time. But if there are other issues out there, if there's other similar issues, perhaps with less prominent athletes, then Nike has a bigger problem and they need to work very hard to get ahead of it. So it's not just a, let's talk about this one instance. Is this instance the meteorite that just fell out of the sky, or is there something larger, particularly more damaging over time that may be in their production assembly or distribution process? Exactly. And then another part of what they need to be doing is prepare something that specifically talks about their manufacturing process and quality control process as well, because that's clearly going to be an issue for them too, is you know, how does this happen? How does a set of sneakers that are destined for the most prominent player in college basketball, how can those fail? How does that happen? What do they take specifically, the steps they take to make sure that something like that isn't a more wide problem? Jim, you're way too young to remember this, but I think it was back in the 80s when there was allegations of a syringe being found in a Pepsi. And so what Pepsi famously did at the time was show their bottling process, if you will, and showed that it was virtually impossible for a syringe to find its way in a bottle of Pepsi. And by doing that, where a picture is worth a thousand words, 
they were able to immediately concern that people would have had about a syringe showing up in their Pepsi, and they were able to withstand that pretty serious issue completely. Well, you're very kind, Nick. I was around in the 80s, and now that you mentioned that, I do remember it was a hoax, right? And so they had had, yeah, they'd had video from their uh, canning facilities to show, as you say, that it was really impossible for this to have happened the way that the person making that charge had said it happened. Now, this was before my adulthood, but we kind of go back into the annals of public relations and the right way to do that, there was, I guess it was back in the 1970s, Nick, was with Tylenol. I think it was Johnson & Johnson producing Tylenol. And there was a safety issue that came out. There was a bad actor, and I don't even remember the details, but had tainted with the express purpose of people being harmed by this. Yeah, in fact, a number died, and it's centered here in Chicago, where I'm calling in from. Absolutely. Johnson Johnson immediately moved to really change the tablets that came apart, which is what this crazy person did, was basically opened up some of these tablets, poison in them, and then put the product on the shelves and a number of people here in Chicago died. And so what Johnson and Johnson did in that case was they changed their formulations and their packaging, really, if you will, both packaging to render that impossible. That's one of the real case studies in this business. And I think both of these stories, really all three of them, really illustrate that you can have the best public relations counsel around. But more importantly than that, it's really key to make sure that if there's something from a product standpoint in terms of how you make your product, how you distribute it, how you package it, those things become absolutely the most important thing you can do. Because then you will have, even if you have good PR counsel, we can help tell that story, but it's the substance behind the message that's to be right. We'll talk a little bit later on before the end of this conversation about things that an organization can do ahead of time to try to prepare for different types of circumstances that are there, knowing you might not ever need it and you might not know the exact form of things, but there've got to be some things that you can be doing just to prepare, just to be able to document things. And one of the other areas that Johnson & Johnson, the makers of Tylenol, got right is not only did they... They were very transparent about the whole process that was there and making changes, but keeping the public informed. Here's what we're doing to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And by the way, if you ever wondered why a seemingly simple package of anything these days is so hard to open, you can probably trace it back to the reaction from the Tylenol tragedy back in the 1970s. Absolutely. Yeah. Nick, I wanted to talk about another PR, I hate to say a PR disaster, this is just a messaging issue that comes from the sports world here pretty recently. And this is from the world of golf. This is not a product failure. It is just a failure in how to talk about something. And I think we can have some lessons here about how to be real and empathetic. Here's the quick background. A professional golfer named Matt Kuchar, and he's been very successful over the years. He's not quite elite like a uh, Tiger Woods or Jordan Spieth or some of the names that you might know, but he has had a very productive career and he's made tens of millions of dollars in his career over time. He was playing in the, I hope I'm saying this correctly, the Mayakoba Golf Classic a couple of months ago. And the professional golfers have regular caddies. And this is a very important role. They don't just lug the bags around, but they help document what the conditions are like. They help advise the golfer in terms of the club selection and what to do. And so that's a big deal. And they typically have arrangements where for star golfers, the caddy may get a regular fee, but typically gets about 10% of what a pro golfer makes in 
tournament play. But for this particular tournament, Matt Kuchar's regular caddy was not available. So he got a local, someone who knew this course where the tournament was being played. And the substitute caddy was uh, David Ortiz. And so there was a uh, an arrangement that Matt Kuchar had made with this caddy that I think he was going to be $3,000 plus some unspecified amount of his winnings. And so if he missed the cut, it was like 1000 If he made the cut, it's 2000 And up to $4,000 total if he made the top 10. Okay, so that was their arrangement. Well, Matt Kuchar won the tournament. And the earnings for winning this tournament was $1,300,000. And as it turned out, Matt Kuchar, instead of the $4,000 or he put like another $1,000 on top of this, he paid this substitute caddy $5,000. And this came out. So it struck a lot of people as a little low, perhaps. And what happened, and Nick, I'll get your thoughts on this, but the thing stretched out for a few days. So I'm not sure the genesis of how the word got out, whether it was on social media or exactly how that was. But every time that Matt Kuchar was asked about this, he seemingly said the wrong thing. So it was a time when he was asked about it, talking to someone from the Golf Channel. He said, well, you can't make everyone happy. And then later on, uh, he was asked about it. He said, well, we had an agreement. It was, uh, this is what it was going to be. It was $5,000 and that was it. And then he said, hey, making $5,000 is a great week. And then kept trying to tell reporters and people that there was no story there. I could go on and on. There was a long litany of how Matt Kuchar managed to stretch out his own agony over time. I guess the larger point that we can apply here, Nick, is when are the right times to be quiet? And without naming names, are there times where you're advising people to say, look, there are certain things to say. There's times where you just kind of need to be quiet, need to listen or there may be times you would, in this instance, say, hey, look, specific agreement or not, this just doesn't look good at all. It doesn't seem like you, Matt Kuchar, the multimillionaire, are living in the same world that a lot of golf fans would be in. When do you just be quiet? No, I think that's a very good question and good setup. And that situation was really cringe-worthy, I would say. I saw and followed all of those comments as they were unfolding, and I do believe it was triggered specifically by social media. And, you know, obviously people follow the sports world, not only basketball, but golf very closely. And when that comment was made, it really did create um, what you said at the top of this segment, talked about empathy. And I think back about hundreds of clients that I've worked with over the years. And one of the hardest things to get them to focus on is empathy, surprisingly enough. But if you're talking about somebody's livelihood, if you're talking about a restructuring that results in people being let go of their jobs or a benefit change or some environmental issue or something that impacts either people's livelihoods, people's health, go the extra mile to show that you're being empathetic. Now, here in a situation like this where you have, as you say, a multimillionaire golfer and somebody who's just basically trying to make a living at the other end of the socioeconomic scale, yeah, it really shows that fortunately his instincts were good. I'm almost certain that he was not being advised by anyone either. What he did was, you know, it's like the old when you're digging a hole, stop digging. You know, I think he's halfway to the earth's core by now. It took so long for him to do so that he really did some pretty serious damage to his own brand. It kind of reminds me of not quite as recent situation, but one that I think all of us who are in the travel can relate to. 
is the United Airlines situation where they dragged that doctor off. If you remember back the way the CEO responded and the company responded initially to that was just completely tone deaf. It was totally focused. Oscar Munoz, who's the CEO of United, by all reports, a very decent fellow. All of their initial messaging was really focused about apologizing to accommodate other passengers. And it was not at all apologetic for the obvious physical harm that the security people did in dragging this passenger off a plane he did not want to get off of. It took them the better part of a week. And they have, unlike the golfer, United Airlines has PR firms and in-house communications people, and they got it wrong not once, not twice. It finally took until their third time to finally get it right. And you just don't have those opportunities these days. A hundred years ago, when I started in this business, if you had a crisis, you could get a bunch of people to figure out what the message was going to be. And you knew you had until, you know, five o'clock that night. These days, you have so much more quickly and your instincts have to be right and your preparation has to be right. Because if you don't, you don't typically get multiple bites at the apple. The United Airlines example is a good one, Nick. Although you can almost think of different scenarios and it still is a bit mind boggling sometimes. You can imagine, for example, the CEO of a major corporation like United probably has legal whispering in their ear, have a lot of other people whispering in their ear, even though you would think they would have very good experience PR counsel. It's and maybe just listening to the wrong people or maybe they're so disconnected on a day to day basis from their customer base or from the rest of the world outside the bubble that the right instincts don't kick in. But I still can't figure out Matt Kuchar, the pro golfer, because pro golfers, they don't wear helmets. They don't have fans uh, way in the stands and they're up close and personal every single day. And they're signing autographs. They're yards away from the fans as they're out there. And by all accounts, Matt Kuchar is a good guy. Probably didn't intend anything wrong here. Certainly had a blind spot. And we'll talk about that as well. But I'll say that for those of you, again, that don't follow pro golf very much. You think about the impact of this. Matt Kuchar has this nickname, Cooch. So sometimes the fans, and he's pretty popular, has been up to this point, a pretty popular player. And so oftentimes when he's introduced going off the first tee, the fans will go Cooch. But now they've actually been booing. They're not going Cooch. They're going boo. He's really taken a hit. So we'll see how he's able to repair his reputation over time. Let's talk about how to stay out of trouble in the first place in terms of your message. So again, as you mentioned, Nick, you work with a lot of different kind of executives and teams and different types of organizations, all the way from big corporations to nonprofits and a lot of things in between. So over the years, have you seen some typical weak links or typical blind spots that organizations have? And are those different from the bigger corporations, say, to not-for-profits and the like? Is there things that they typically missing or aren't thinking about when it comes to their reputations and public relations? Organizations, both for-profit and not-for-profit, have gotten smart, most of them have, about the need to have a crisis communications plan in place because of what I talked about a couple of minutes ago, which is that these things unfold so quickly that you really need to have things, materials, statements, data points, Q&As press releases, internal communications, all of those things, contact lists, you need to have those things up to date and you need to have them available. And I think that really runs the gamut. I think small corporations, universities, large corporations, by and large, I would say 
majority of them understand the need to have that kind of a tool that's updated on a regular basis and rolled out to a crisis communications team with drills and so forth. I think more and more of them understand that. Of course, the ones that have deep uh, resources are more able to do that in a pretty robust way. But we've seen that a lot of them are able to do that. The piece that I don't think corporations of any size have embraced in a way they should is beyond whatever they do to prepare those kind of manuals. They don't really take a deep dive to figure out beyond the obvious, where could they be vulnerable? You know, where are the things that could come up and bite them in the butt? They include them in a crisis manual or at least maybe take some operational steps to address it's interesting. So there are a number of things when we've worked with clients who are enlightened enough to do this kind of activity. We go in, we'll interview the CEO, other members of the senior leadership team, people in the field, plant managers, key customers, distributors, investors, and uncover, you know, we questions like, you know, what keeps you up at night? What are some things that maybe haven't been planned for that could be a real serious issue for this organization if it came to light. Just even that activity of getting people to stop and think and reflect about maybe the not so obvious things that could go sideways. And you can nip that in the bud. You can address that in many, many different ways. And when we've done that for organizations, they found it to be a very eye-opening and illuminating exercise. And it often leads changes in businesses or manufacturing practices or hiring practices end up saving them all kinds of trouble down the line. And I would suppose a part of that, you have to bring in scenarios of when someone would want to make some sort of false claim or be a truly bad actor in some of these we've talked about before. So not just areas where how are we packaging and shipping and our supply chain and our policies and procedures documenting the more everyday things. But I guess to some extent, you have to counsel your clients of, hey, if somebody really wanted to mess with you in varying degrees here are some ways you might be vulnerable they haven't even thought about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that in a lot of the work that we do. You know, you've got activist groups, advocacy groups, you've got labor unions, you've got unethical competitors, you've got disgruntled job candidates or former employees. And, you know, these days there's so many channels and opportunities for people to make mischief, as you talked about there. And Often it becomes very difficult even to find people's fingerprints on it. So part of any good vulnerabilities assessment is looking for and gaming out what kinds of things could happen, not just naturally, but a little bit of nefarious side or inside help. And along those lines, Nick, I'm curious as to whether some of your clients and if you help with them in terms of actually practicing, you know, like the fire drill. <laughs> so when something happens, do we know where to locate certain documentation? Do we know whom should be available to talk about it and who can't and that, that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Very illuminating. And again, we really encourage clients not only to have a crisis communications plan, but to test it either in a tabletop exercise where it's a little bit more of an academic undertaking or a full-scale drill where maybe the crisis communications team only knows sometime during the week of April, whatever, there's going to be a drill and then things start happening. And we see how they respond. Often when either one of those things, whether it's a tabletop or a full-scale drill, it often leads to examination and an updating of the crisis communications plan because you can create something in a vacuum. But when you actually test team that's charged with using it, it sometimes illustrates the need for 
documents that may not already be there or messages that are not already there or other things to shore it up. Good. Let's talk about public relations as part of a larger growth picture as well, not just as its own discipline, which certainly is important. But when you look at how to integrate with marketing, sales, other functions of the business, I mean, that's certainly one of the strengths that you and your colleagues bring into the mix. That was one of the things that was so valuable to us at Mount Valley Spring Company. We were honored not just for public relations, but bringing that in with marketing. So do you have some general guidelines? I know you've had some engagements where you have been part of an overall growth strategy. So how can any organization get more proactive value from PR? Yeah, it's so key, Jim, for it to be integrated. And again, integrated communications or integrated marketing is such a buzzword today. But as you alluded to, it's been important for a long time. And sometimes with our clients, getting them to understand that it needs to be looked at as one key piece of the overall marketing effort that needs to be integrated with all the others, sometimes is a bit of a challenge because you you run into some organizations and they're quite siloed. So the public relations function isn't necessarily integrated with the rest of marketing or if it's an internally focused public relations effort. We're all part of these organizations where this really becomes a key. And we're seeing the paid marketing. We're seeing the earned media. We're seeing, you know, in some cases still direct mail. We're seeing social media posts. We're going to conferences. It really does need to be looked at very holistically because then part of it is the old adage about, you know, one plus one equals three. You can end up getting more bang for your buck. It really does need to be looked at in that kind of an integrated way because otherwise you're not capitalizing on opportunities, which is the lost opportunity side. But if it's not coordinated and part of an integrated program, you could end up having a mistake made because you really thought about a particular ad box or a message that's going out. Um, paid channel, and then you're sitting there in your earned media activities trying to get an article to appear in a trade publication or a local news piece or whatnot that's misaligned with whatever the marketing message is. And that can be, at best, confusing to consumers. And at worst, it creates a muddled reception or turns people off just when you're supposed to be engaging them. And along the lines of growth and using PR to its fullest capability. And Nick, you're doing a pretty cool thing, have been in the last, uh, I guess, couple of years. You're the vice chair of the board of directors for the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Foundation. And thinking through with a lot of our message manager listeners who may have causes, not-for-profits that they either work for or are important to them, a lot of our listeners are on boards, as you are as well. You know, nonprofits tend to be pretty uh, resource constrained. They need to squeeze every penny, everything that they can do. It seems like smart PR, as you were talking about, would be a particularly important discipline when it comes to fundraising and friend raising. So in your experience, both on this board and serving, having served a lot of universities and not-for-profits as well, where do you see the best opportunities these days for nonprofits to leverage PR well? Well, you could do what the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Foundation did, which was invite a public relations professional, myself, to the board. Because again, <laughs> this is a purely volunteer organization, as so many of them are. Just this past week that I joined the board, seven years I've been on that board, and I've become involved. I'm now, as you said, the vice chair of the board. And 
you know, the key to answer your question directly is to make sure that you have access to talented communications professionals. If you're not in a position to afford to pay them, as many, to your point, many are not in a position to do, find the ones who could join your board from a volunteer standpoint, and then you get really the best kind of insights and that professional expertise without necessarily having to pay for it. It is important, particularly if you're doing anything that's, you know, in a highly public fashion, which certainly we with the Lincoln Foundation have been over the years, that it is important to have that discipline at the table and represented. And one of the best ways a not-for-profit can do that, as I said, is to invite somebody with that expertise to be a member of the board. You can certainly contract with a public relations firm or individual professional as well, but just as savvy organizations, both in the not-for-profit world and the for-profit world, have realized, you know, you can invite people to provide their expertise by inviting them to be on the board, and then you really get that in the not-for-profit case example without having to pay for it. Well, I imagine you were probably asked many times, have been asked many times over the years to join boards or provide help and advice and do pro bono projects. You mentioned a little bit of the genesis with the Lincoln Library Foundation, but what was it that appealed to you about this particular one? Because there are only so many hours in the day. And if I may ask you, you know, you can brag a little bit here too as well, but what you've learned and contributed along the way and how has the foundation been doing? What attracted me about it was, you know, again, um, here in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln is certainly, even though he grew up where before becoming associated Illinois is beloved son of the state. I've been kind of a political since I was 14 years old. So, and then just watching the way our political world unfolded in the last 10 years or so, it's become so divided and we're all clamoring for what are the lessons we can learn? How can we come together as a nation? What, what are the risks of disintegration? And I think we've seen that over and over again, probably no more so than even today. And the idea of being associated with a president who is so widely beloved as Abraham Lincoln and his papers and his thinking and his insights and have some role in helping to make sure that things are remembered and preserved and spread was really very appealing to me. And when I understood what the initial time commitment was, it certainly blossomed and become a lot more than that since then. It was very attractive to me. And, you know, it's actually a pretty high powered board with a lot of very influential folks on it. It's been very good from a professional standpoint. A couple of years before I joined the board, the board decided to acquire what was then the largest collection of artifacts that were made available in a sale, actually from a board member of the foundation decided to sell her personal collection of Lincoln artifacts to the foundation. And the foundation decided to take out a pretty substantial loan in order to acquire the collection. And they've been working very hard ever since to try to pay down that debt. They've made a lot of progress, but there's still quite a bit that's left to pay off here, even, I think, 12 years later since they bought the collection. So what I've been involved with is just trying to help promote the good works of the foundation. Each year, they give what's called the Lincoln Leadership Prize to a very prominent individual. They've given it to folks like President Clinton and Desmond Tutu uh-huh. and Lech Wałęsa, a bunch of folks like that this year. Just a month from now, say on April 1st, they'll be giving it to uh, President George W. And that's a great opportunity for some good visibility for the foundation and the good works we're doing. So that's a lot I've been focused on of late. That's tremendous. Very impressive list there, Nick. I guess 
in thinking about it, Abraham Lincoln might be the most beloved, non-controversial figure in American history. I mean, almost everyone wants to invoke Lincoln and the elements Absolutely. of his character. And he had a difficult, difficult life. That's no question about it. And it's interesting, your comment about him being non-controversial. He was certainly controversial during his lifetime. Yes, but it's he interesting was. What he, to say the least. And what he was able to do, though, was to find a way to bring the country back together. Of course, it was precipitated by the terrible civil war that cost so many hundreds of thousands of lives. But the way he treated both his inner circle, the way he treated even his so-called enemies was really illustrative and very, I think, helpful for us here now, you know, 150 years later, back on and draw some lessons from and find ways to apply. And, you know, hopefully we don't end up down the same path that we did back in 1861 when we found ourselves at war with one. But if you think about some of the rhetoric that's at play out there in the public sphere, we need the lessons of President Lincoln now more than ever. Could not agree more. Nick Calm, I think back to where one of the very early pioneers of public relations, uh, Edward Bernays, it was accused of using propaganda. And he said, well, you know, in my view, it's, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, he talked about it, well, there's propaganda versus impropaganda. Any summary thoughts for our listeners about not just from the ethical, but also strategic and effective use of PR today? If you could summarize the way that people in business across the board really should be looking at public relations. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think from an ethical standpoint, from a transparency standpoint, you know, with the way people are consuming news and information today, I mean, it was not that long ago when he was still on the air that John Stewart of The Daily Show was viewed as the most credible newsman in America. It really shows as an opportunity, I hate to say, for people who are not ethical and not view their responsibility properly to manipulate people and manipulate people's views. Certainly, if you're in the public relations business, you're trying to shape them, but it needs to be with an underpinning of strong ethics, high transparency, and a sense of responsibility, because with public relations, it is a very powerful tool. It can shape opinions, but if it's used improperly, it would use unethically. There's a lot of damage that can be done to people as individuals, as consumers, as employees, as voters, whatever it is, I think the responsibility that we in the profession have is to use that responsibility and that opportunity we have to shape opinions properly and to think about the implications of not doing so and avoid them at all costs. Terrific. Nick Calm, how can people keep in touch with you and your firm, Reputation Partners? So the firm is reputationpartners.com is our website. You can also find LinkedIn at Nick Calm and on Twitter at, at Nick Calm as well. And I love to engage with people and love to share my point of view and to learn from as well. I've been doing this a very long time, but I feel like I'm learning every day, the way the communications landscape is changing. But I love what I do. This is all I've ever done and enjoy having my own firm now 16 plus years in and hope to be able to continue for many years to come. Message managers, we promise the PR expertise without the nonsense. And we got it. Nick Calm. Thank you again very much for joining us. It was my pleasure, Jim. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining the Manage Your Message podcast. Hey, please tap subscribe on your way out. And I would appreciate it if you would take just a brief moment to rate and review us. That five-star rating helps other professionals like you join our conversation. Is there something important changing in your company with your members, with your message? 
Hey, as we just learned, the most successful professionals take a different approach to developing, sharing, and reinforcing their messages. I would be happy to talk with you about it. Maybe now is a good time to schedule me to visit and speak with your group so that everyone can be a message manager. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com, and my mobile number is on the website jimcar.com. That's K-A-R-R-H. And on the website, you'll also see an opportunity to get my free weekly message manager memo. That's about a two-minute read with tips you can use in your business right away. Until next time, message managers. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcar.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often.